Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to the fathers that are out there, and I just want to take a quick moment and say happy Father's Day to my dad, um, and just appreciate all that he's done for me. So, dad, if you're listening, uh, happy Father's Day. Appreciate all that you do and uh, the, the model that you have been and continue to be for us and our family. A um, couple quick things for you before we dive into today's message. Uh, had a great time over at the Wicks, so just want to thank them at the family barbecue. There were several of us out there. We just enjoyed some hot dogs, chips, some fellowship, um, and so just uh, really appreciate it. Thank you guys for opening up your home to us, and uh, meant a lot to us. And then also for those of you that are enjoying Father's Day, I pray that uh, you just have a great day today. Uh, have a wonderful opportunity to get out and maybe do stuff with your family. Next thing I'm going to say is how many of you are excited about the rain that we got last night? Yeah, that was nice. We were sitting there, and uh, we kind of saw it coming through, and uh, we were out at the pool enjoying some time, and then we went back to the house and decided to open up the sliding glass door and just kind of let the rain fall, and we just kind of heard it. And then all of a sudden, we kind of said, yeah, maybe we need to close the sliding glass door because it's really coming down. Um, and then the final thing I'm going to say, I'm going to just say it once, um, is go Nuggets. I mean, I have to say it, because I don't know that I'm going to be able to say much about the Broncos this coming season. So I'm a, I'm a total bandwagon fan. Um, I uh, uh, basically don't even know that I could spell nuggets, but I'm going to just say it. Go Nuggets. Do you, know, do you guys are looking at me like Denver Nuggets? Okay. The NBA basketball team? Okay. They, they won the championships? Okay, good. You guys are looking at me like, what are you talking about? All right. Um, we are in Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to turn there, but also that will be up on the screen in a moment. And what's been interesting about this passage that we're going to examine in a moment is for a period through the book, we have been hearing the author speak about Christ being a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we sit there and we think, well, who is Melchizedek? We wonder about this individual. Now, how many of you have ever done a study on Melchizedek? You kind of maybe look at who's who in the Bible. It's a book that's out there. You can purchase it. And basically the whole book goes through all of the people that are mentioned in the Bible and the places that are mentioned in the Bible. And so you're thinking, well, we've heard about Melchizedek. We've heard him mentioned, and so as you turn to Melchizedek, you're kind of expecting a lot of pages about this individual. You're expecting sort of this grandiose explanation of who he is, and then you realize there's not much there. And then you think, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is this great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then we try to find out about who Melchizedek is in the Bible, and there's really only a couple of verses that have been given to Melchizedek. What is this all about? And so what I'd like to do is, is I want to just take a moment, and I want to continue to encourage us to remind us that when we have a gift that we've been given, and we begin to recognize its true value, and when we begin to place it up against other things, and we truly realize how valuable it is, we begin to cherish what is there. Now the challenge of this is, as we've learned in the book of Hebrews, that individuals who had come to Jesus, particularly individuals who were Jewish during their time, who had most likely been part of the Christ event, 
or perhaps maybe had been born just briefly after the Christ event, of what I'm talking about is Christ's life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, had placed their faith and trust in Jesus. It was an exciting time, but the challenges were this, that 30 years had gone by, Jesus had now ascended into heaven, and the individuals who had placed their faith and trust in Christ were undergoing immense persecution. They were struggling to maintain their faith. The challenges of the world were too great for them. And so what they were doing was they were beginning to say, you know what, maybe this Jesus thing isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Maybe we need to go back to what was. And so a lot of them were leaving the Christian faith and beginning to reincorporate or go back to the traditions that were found in the Old Testament because they thought it would be better to go to that because what they expected, what they demanded, and what they wanted of Christ wasn't occurring in their life. And so last week, we talked about the fact that we walk by faith and not by sight. Because honestly, when we move forward in our lives, we can have expectations of what we think God should do for us. But oftentimes, the expectations aren't the reality. And that's when we must walk by faith and not by sight, trusting in the promises of God. We discovered last week that Christ is an anchor for our soul. And so lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. If Christ is an anchor for our soul, have you anchored your soul to Jesus Christ? And that's where we find ourselves today. At the end of that passage, in chapter 6, we hear the words that Christ is a great high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We've heard it a couple of other times. You've heard me mention it in a couple of the other sermons. And I've always kind of alluded to why that's stated. But today we're going to begin to discover why Jesus is a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So, simple question is this. Who is Melchizedek? Who is he? Right? And why is a Jesus a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? Why isn't he a priest in the order of the Levitical priesthood? What's the difference? Why is it mentioned? Why do we need to know this? And why is the author mentioning this several times to the people who are reading this book? And so to do that, we're going to kind of look at some scriptures we're going to look also at who Melchizedek was, but then we're going to discover the distinguished difference as to why Jesus would be under the order of Melchizedek and not part of the Levitical priesthood. Now, to do that, I'm just going to kind of give us a little bit of a hint. I'm going to give us a little bit of a clue. We learn of Melchizedek's importance and, the re um, and his relevance in the prophetic prediction about our Messiah in Psalm 110, verse 4. That's where we learn that there's going to be something important about who Melchizedek was, as well as who as the Messiah. David, essentially, is writing a psalm, and he's speaking of Christ, and he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And everybody kind of looks, and they're kind of going, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Let's see. Levitical, tribe, priest. Nope, not there. 
So who is this guy? Why is that mentioned? And what we're going to discover is, is that if you look to the Levitical priesthood, you will find nothing about Melchizedek. So why is Jesus a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? Let's take a moment. We're going to open up our Bibles again. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 1 through 10. This Melchizedek was king of Salem. And, if you have your Bibles, I would mark that, priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, speaking of Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, the son of God, or sorry, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. If you have your Bibles, I would underline that because that's going to become extremely important in just a minute as we discover the superiority of Melchizedek, hence the superiority of Christ over the Levitical priesthood. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. If you have your Bibles again, verse 7 is extremely important, and it says, and without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Huh? What? Why is this here? Remember and recognize that the author of the book of Hebrews is going through a systematic work demonstrating the superiority of Christ to all of what was happening or had happened in Old Testament law. You have to remember that we've traveled through this book, and the entire book, the purpose behind it, is for the author to demonstrate Christ's superiority over all of the old system. What he's doing is he is systematically, essentially, debunking any area that an individual might go to and say, well, well perhaps this is better. Maybe this is better. Maybe that is better. So if you remember back, we've worked through this text and we've discovered that Christ is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the Old Testament system. He's superior to Moses. And then we've also been hearing that he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so now what we're going to discover is why. And we read this and we hear the author talking about the fact that some guy named Melchizedek came along and Abraham had to pay him a tenth and that Melchizedek blessed him. What is that all about? Why is that there? Why is that even be, being mentioned? And then we hear, well, that because that happened, 
This guy, Levi, okay, well, I kind of think I remember Levi's, Levites, Levitical priesthood, also, therefore, is inferior to Melchizedek. And then all of a sudden, Levi was kind of still in the loins, like, what, what's this all about? Where are we going here? And so what we're doing is, is we're going back, and what we're going to see is that the author is demonstrating Christ's superiority because of who Melchizedek was. And then what we're going to discover is, is that Christ had to be in the line of Melchizedek and not in the line of Levitical, the Levitical priesthood. So let me take a minute, and let's kind of break this down, okay? The first thing that I want to show you are in verses 1 through uh, 3, and what we're going to discover is this. We discover the uniqueness of Melchizedek, and his uniqueness was that he was both a priest and a king. Don't miss that. He was both a priest and a king. That's extremely important. Now, how do we know this? How do we discover this? Well, what I would encourage you to do, and for the sake of time, and I'm not going to go read all of Genesis chapter 14, but I would encourage you this week, if you have time in uh, your study or in your time of prayer, to go back and read all of that chapter. But where we learn of Melchizedek is in Genesis chapter 14. And it is where, essentially, in the great battle of the kings, Abram, who then later becomes Abraham, rescues Lot. The battle of the king occurs, Abram, now Abraham, goes and rescues Lot. The battles are concluded, and along comes Melchizedek. And at the end of the battle, we read of what Melchizedek does after Abram, who becomes Abraham, had rescued Lot. And we read of it in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's all we read. That's all we know. That's all we hear. That's the only time that Melchizedek is mentioned in the entirety of the Old Testament. What? Like, I mean, Melchizedek? Like, we've been hearing about this guy, right? And you're thinking, and you're in this play, and you're all excited, and you're like, okay, we've been hearing about Melchizedek. We've been hearing about what's going on. There must be something big. There must be something huge, right? And the next thing you know, you're waiting for Melchizedek, and you're in the play, and you have to go to the restroom. And so you run to the restroom and you do your business real quick for about two minutes and then you discover that Melchizedek was on stage and off stage and you hadn't even got a chance to see him. And you're like, wait a minute, I missed this. That's it. He's a blip on the radar when we look at the Old Testament. But his significance is huge. And I think some of the reasons why Melchizedek isn't mentioned and why Melchizedek remains mysterious in some senses is to demonstrate the mystery of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what I will tell you is this. Individuals have tried, and there are some theories about who was Melchizedek. Okay? If you do a little bit of reading, you'll discover that some people feel that he was a pre-incarnate Christ. 
Other people feel that he was an angel. Other people feel that sort of he was a theophany or sort of this appearance that came for a moment, did his thing, and then left. But what's interesting is all will agree that he was what we call a type of Christ. He was a manner that was sort of an echo to the future, a reverberation of what Christ would be. But interestingly enough, personally, you can disagree with me, I'll just postulate that he was a guy. And not much is known about him. But what's interesting is, is we discover several things. We discover that he was both a king and a priest. We discover that no lineage is given to him, so there's no way to trace back where he came from or who he was in the biblical text. And he enters essentially, does his thing, and exits. And that will become important in just a minute. Now, the other thing that we want to realize is we read a few things about him. And what I want to show you just in these verses of Genesis 14, 18 through 20 is there's two very important things to notice, not to miss. So two very important things occur in this meeting. The first is that Melchizedek blesses Abram, okay, as we read it, or Abraham, who later has his name changed, okay? And the second is that Abram, or Abraham, pays tithes to Melchizedek. Don't miss that, okay? If you have that, I would circle that in your Bibles because that is going to be the lineup for the argument that the author is making in the book of Hebrews. Each instance, okay, demonstrates Melchizedek's superiority over Abram or Abraham. Why? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. Who is the patriarch of the nations? Right? We've sung it in Sunday school, or some of you sung it, right? Father had many sons had father, right? Okay, he's the patriarch of the nations. Anyone who knew, anyone who was part of that line, they would trace it back and they would say, well, you know, Abram, or Abraham, is the father. He is the patriarch of who we are. Hence, he has superiority. Everything flows from him. Everything goes from him. There is essentially nothing superior to him. And yet, what we discover is that Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek and paid tithes to him. Why is that important? Remember that as the father of the nations, later on we're going to discover that the Levitical priesthood was established, and that's what everybody paid their offering to. And yet what we discover is that Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Let's continue on. Note also, okay, the next point, no genealogy is given for Melchizedek. This is important to see. It remains a mystery. He walks onto the scene as a king and a priest. And he walks off the scene as a king and a priest. That's it. That's all that we know about him, right? Why would this be important? Because the reason is, is either aspect, either king or priest, had a temporal fashion. 
You were king for a period, right? You came, you lived, you became a king, you died, hence your reign is done. You were a king, you came, you became a king, you were conquered, hence your reign is done, right? Same thing with the priests. In the Levitical priesthood, the individuals would come. Now, they had to be Levites. We'll discover that in a minute. But they would come, they would do their duty. They would be priests for a period, essentially a term. And then after their term, they were done. Just like our elected officials, kind of. You did your thing, and you finished. But yet what's mysterious about this is Melchizedek has no genealogy. There's no beginning, and there's no end. There's no record in the biblical text of he was king of Salem for a period, and then died, and then we find out that after him there was a new king. Or he was conquered, and we find out there was a new kingdom. And part of that is a reverberation to demonstrate the continuation of the kingdom of our Messiah. That's why we begin to discover that Jesus has to be under the order of Melchizedek. Now, the other thing that I want to show you is I keep saying, right, that Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. Think about this for a minute. Was anybody ever in Scripture both a priest and a king? I'll tell you one who tried, and we're going to read about it in a minute. One person tried, and it didn't go so well. Let's take a moment. Let's look at this. Remember that the offices of priest and king were kept separate under the Old Testament law. According to the Old Testament, priests were priests and kings were kings. You could not combine the two. That was according to the law. And it was followed for centuries. These offices were not to be united. Under the law, kings were kings and priests were priests. Specifically, no one was allowed to serve as a priest other than the Levites. Go back, look at Old Testament law. We begin to discover that the Levitical priesthood under the tribe of Levi were the only ones that could fulfill the priestly office. Period. However, the Levitical priesthood could never serve as king. They were separate. Essentially, separation of church and state. Well, separation of priestly order and kingdom. One person tried this. Uzziah, king of Judah, in his pride, tried to unite these two offices for himself. I'm going to do it. I'm king, and I want to be priest. I'm going to do it. And all I'm going to tell you is, read in 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 23, it didn't go so well. He ended up with leprosy for the remainder of his days. In his pride, when he said, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to unite the two offices, God said, no, you're not. That's reserved for my son and my son alone, who is under Melchizedek, who demonstrates the unique aspect of being able to be both king and priest. And so we look, and we read again in verses 1 through 3, Melchizedek was king of Salem, and priest of God Most High. 
he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek serves essentially as a typological aspect of who Jesus is. Hence, Jesus is under the order of Melchizedek. Now, don't miss this. As we see in the second verse of Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek's name means that he was king of righteousness and prince of peace. Do we hear that about someone else in the scriptures? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, unlike the priests from the Levitical tribe, Melchizedek serves in a unique dual role of king and priest, which is a foreshadowing to our Savior Jesus, who is both an eternal priest and king. The big aha moment that people are hearing in this when they discover that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek is that Melchizedek, if they could even remember, was the only individual that they know in their lifetime or perhaps in their history that served in both the king and priestly role and lived. And if they remember back and they look at it, they would also go back and say, no one else has done it other than when Uzziah tried to do it and it didn't go so well for him. And so what is happening here is the author is saying, don't forget the uniqueness about who Jesus is. Because no one else can serve both as priest and king, except for Jesus. We'll discover that in more detail in next week's sermon when we look essentially at the latter verses of chapter 7. But for now, the author is developing the argument to say, you need to know why Jesus is the great high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now also, what I love about this is Charles Spurgeon's quote. Okay? Think through this for a minute. To both be a priest and a king, one who's righteous and one of peace. The two are inextricably linked, and that's what Spurgeon sort of pulls together. He says, don't miss this. It's not just, yeah, he was a king of righteousness, and he was essentially the king of peace. What Spurgeon is saying is that the two go together, the two go hand in hand, and essentially the peace comes out of him being a king of righteousness. Spurgeon says this, note well the order of these two, meaning, okay, being the king of righteousness and the king of peace and the dependence of one upon the other. For there could be no true peace that is not grounded upon righteousness, and out of righteousness, peace is sure to spring up. We long for peace, don't we? I don't know about you, but we want to see peace in the world, don't we? It starts with righteousness. And it starts with a righteous king. And Christ was and is a righteous king. Hence, he can be the king who brings eternal peace.
Don't miss that. Because what's going on is the author is saying that Jesus is under the order of Melchizedek because A, Melchizedek with both king and priest, but not only that, he was also a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Individuals have essentially said Salem translate to Zion or to Judah. They sort of move in that general direction. That can be postulated, although I don't know that I would 100% found it. But there are all of these echoing shadows to demonstrate indeed who Jesus is. And anyone during that day who's paying attention, who's leaving following Jesus Christ, when they hear these words, would begin to say, hey, wait a minute. We shouldn't walk away. Now, for us today, we're looking at it and we're like, hey, you know what? We're not in the Old Testament. We don't have the priestly system. Why do we need to worry about this? Why should we think about it? So let's sort of modernize this for a minute. When in our faith have we been disappointed with something that God has not done for us? When do we question him? When do we begin to think, you know what, maybe following Jesus isn't the best thing. Or maybe what we do is, is we say, sure, I'll take a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of the world. Or a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of modern, you know, new age movement or whatever that would be. People are doing that all the time. And so essentially for us, what we need to remember is this. When we're tempted to take away from what Christ has done for us, because we feel that God is not doing what he thinks he should for us. We should go back and look at the book of Hebrews and say, don't leave the faith. Don't wander from the faith. Don't drift away and add things to it or take away from what Jesus has done. Because, as we discovered earlier in chapter 6, Christ is an anchor for our soul. And so when things happen... When trouble comes, when the storms of life are out there and we're being blown back and forth, the question remains is, to whom will you anchor your soul? Will you anchor yourself to Christ? Will you trust in his promises that he's given? Will you recognize the superiority of Jesus over all that had been done? Or will you turn back to things of which you were familiar earlier and try to surpass Christ in your own doing because of what you thought had worked in the past? Or will you remain true to the promise that has been given? That's the whole thing that's going on right here. And so essentially, what the author is doing is he is little by little systematically demonstrating to each and every individual how Christ is superior to any aspect of the Old Testament. Now, the other thing that is interesting, we continue on, and we see in verses 1 through 3, essentially, that the uniqueness of Melchizedek was that he was both a priest and a king. And then we begin to read and discover this whole thing about how Abram, or now Abraham, was blessed by Melchizedek and gave him a tenth, and that means that Levi was essentially under Melchizedek because Levi was still in the loins. And we're like, what? What What are you talking about? So essentially, verses 4 through 10, the central point that's being made, and anyone that understands it, anyone that looks at it is going to go, oh, okay, now I get it. What the author is driving at is this. Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. And therefore, Levi. And hence... 
the entire Levitical priesthood. That's the line of argument that individuals would look at and they would go, okay, now I get it. Now I understand. Now, before I drive into this and show you why, you have to go back and you have to think through this, right? None of us have been around as long as the Levitical priesthood was in order. For centuries, the people of God were used to the Levites being the ones who were the priests who would go and would provide the sacrifices for the offering of God. They were the ones who would care for the temple. They were the ones who would care for the tabernacle. It was designed by the Old Testament system. So you know in your life the Levites are the ones who care for the sacrifice. They were the priests. You also know that the Levites were under Father Abraham, the patriarch of our society. These guys, whoever they are, are important. But now watch how the author systematically demonstrates Melchizedek's superiority to all of that system. Right? In Old Testament, remember this. Levi, right, was a descendant of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abram, or Abraham. That's where it's important. So look at that genealogy, right? And remember that genealogical significance, particularly for people in the Old Testament, is huge. Who you came from, who you were under, who your father was, had a huge level of importance. And so in this, they're looking and they're thinking, okay, now I see why we're going all the way back to Abram or Abraham. Because the entire priestly system is under the Levitical tribe or the Levitical priests. Now, watch this. Yet while under the law, everyone gave offerings to the Levitical priests... Okay, so under the law, as established, we, okay, if we were part of this, would give offerings to the Levitical priests. Here, meaning in this instance, the Levitical priests, as descendants of Abraham, gave their offerings to Melchizedek. That's what he's saying. Because they are under the line of Abraham, and Abraham gave Melchizedek the offering. Melchizedek is the one who is superior. That's what's going on. That never happened before. The Levitical priests would never give an offering to someone greater other than God. And they would not be blessed. And so what he's doing is through the line, he is saying, because Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham and gave blessing, uh, or Abraham gave an offering to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is superior. Because the Levites are under the lineage of Abraham, they are also inferior to Melchizedek. That's the argument that's being made. So we continue on, and it says... 
Here the Levitical priests, as descendants of Abraham, gave their offerings to Melchizedek. The inferior gives an offering to the greater, and the inferior is blessed by the greater. Do you see how that's important? Now we read what the author is saying in Hebrews 7, 4. Just think how great he was, meaning Melchizedek. Okay? So think about this. Think about how great he was. Think about how great this Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch, okay? Father Abraham had many sons, right? He was the, you know, I can't even sing, but big dude, main guy, okay? Even the patriarch, even the one who we are all under, all of what's been established from what all flows, even the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Again, go back and read Genesis 14. Okay? Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. Okay, that's Old Testament law. We know that the law requires, essentially, the descendants of Levi, those who are under Levi, who become uh, priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. Okay, so he's going back and he's saying, look, we collect from the Levites, or the, Levi, or the Levites collect from us, but we're descended, they are descended from Abraham. There's the line. Right? This man, okay, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi. He wasn't part of this. He wasn't part of the Levitical priesthood. He wasn't under the Levites. Yet he collected, okay? He collected a tenth from Abraham. What? So wait a minute. We're supposed to be under the Levitical priests who are supposed to be under Father Abraham. But yet, this guy comes along and takes from Abraham of which we're supposed to be under and giving to. Doesn't make sense. But the argument is, that's why Melchizedek is superior. And he blessed him who had the promises. And that's where verse 7 begins to make sense. Okay? That's why I told you to circle verse 7. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Don't miss that argument. The lesser person is blessed by the greater. Who blessed who? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Yet the greater that we think, Abraham, Father Abraham, isn't as great as he was. That's, that's exactly what the author is saying. In one case, the tenth is collected by men who die. Okay? Notice this. They're going back to the Levitical priesthood. They're recognizing that the tenths were collected, and those individuals were priests. They were great, right? Okay? It was collected by them, but they die. The reality is this. Right? One of these days, I'm going to die. I'm going to go be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to live forever here. I'm going to die. But what's interesting is, having no genealogy, 
right? No recorded entrance or exit. Melchizedek had been deemed someone who lived forever. He wasn't like the priests. It wasn't like, you know, we're looking back and we see that Trevor served at Faith Bible Church from July of 2004 until whenever it is. That was his time. Or, Trevor was born on July 13, 1973, and he died in an amazing event in Jackson Hole where he launched off a cliff into the Hobacks, and what we see is he was taken up into heaven in February 22nd of 2000, and I don't know, I'd like to live 100 years, 73, right? The mystery becomes the glory. The eternality becomes the joy. And when people begin to look, they say, you know, now I get that it wouldn't be right for Christ to be under the Levitical tribe. Because as someone who's under the Levitical tribe, he would have been someone who would have had to die, he would have been someone who would have had to serve a term, and he could not have been a king. Do you see why that's so important? That's why the author is saying Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so this obscure priestly king who gets about three verses dedicated to him in Genesis and then is alluded to via the prophecy of David becomes the foundational aspect for the unique aspect of what we have in our Savior Jesus Christ, both priest and king. And the only one who can serve in that role is Jesus. And so we continue on and we read this. Verse 8 of seven, chapter 7. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who died, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. The other case being essentially the reference of Melchizedek and Abraham. And this is where we see the argument unfold. One might even say that Levi, okay, so everybody knows the Levitical priesthood who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Now do we understand how we paid the tenth through Abraham? Levi was a descendant of Father Abraham. Because when Melchizedek, when the occurrence happened, when Melchizedek met Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, okay, the father, the patriarch of the nation, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. He was a glint in his mother's eye, is maybe the right way to put that wasn't even around. And yet the entire Levitical priesthood of what you are familiar with, of what you've based your entire understanding for over centuries, is no longer valid. Because of this occurrence all the way back in Genesis, where Melchizedek shows up on the scene, blesses Abraham, And Abraham pays him a tenth of the plunder. We look and we think, who is Melchizedek? And why is Jesus a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? Well, this is what I want to leave you with this morning. Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek served both as priest and king. 
He was the only one to do so. The only one to do so. And just so that you're aware, he continues on in the argument. Not only, right, was Jesus and Melchizedek individuals who served both as priest and king, they both are superior to the entire Levitical priesthood. That's why Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that important? Right? Why will that need to be discovered? We're going to go in more to that, and if you are someone who's kind of a type A person, that's going to be essentially marked out in the next part of this chapter. We're going to see, and you can actually see it in the, uh, the NIV, it says Jesus is like Melchizedek. And the importance in that is to go back to the people and say, look, you're wanting to go back to something. You're wanting to go back to something that you thought had worked. Things aren't going the way that you want, the way that you expect, and so you're abandoning Jesus, who is the best of the best, who I have, as the author is saying, been systematically showing you why he is better than anything that you're trying to go back to. I'm walking through, and everything that you're running to, I am showing you Jesus is better. Everything that you're trying to use to surpass Jesus is inferior to Christ himself. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is this. What are you running to other than Christ? What are you running to in your life because you think that by running to that, you will have something better than Christ alone? What are you afraid of to lose in your life to just have Jesus? Because what's going to happen is the author is going to say the exact same thing in chapter 12. Where are you running and where are your eyes fixed? That's what he's doing. He is building this building block. He is putting up the argument. He is debunking anything that could be better than Jesus. And he's saying, look, you want to look to that? I'm going to show you how Jesus is better. You want to look to that? I'm going to show you how Jesus is better. You want to look to that? I'm going to show you how Jesus is better. And everybody's trying to scatter. And everybody's trying to say, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about this? Because I'm not getting what I want. And the author's coming forward and he's saying, Jesus doesn't exist to give you what you want. Jesus exists to give you what you desperately need. And that is the salvation of your soul. And so brothers and sisters this morning that gather, I just ask you, where are you running? And to what are you running toward other than our Savior Jesus Christ? Have you attached yourself to the anchor of our soul? Our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just thank you. Father, we thank you for Hebrews. It's a challenging book, yet it is a beautiful one. And Father, we thank you for the diligence of the author to systematically take time to demonstrate the superiority of Christ over every Old Testament aspect. Father, we've been hearing about this Melchizedek, and it's interesting because there's not much known about him in the Bible. But what is known is wholly important. And Father, knowing that Melchizedek was both priest and king separates him 
from anyone else in the entirety of the Old Testament. Because kings could be kings and priests could be priests, but you could not put the two together. And yet, Melchizedek was. And Christ is under the order of Melchizedek. Father, thank you for the uniqueness of Melchizedek. Thank you for the uniqueness of our Savior Christ, who is both priest and king. Father, thank you for the priestly aspect of which we can come. We can receive forgiveness through his death and resurrection from the grave. But Father, thank you that he's not just priest, but he's also king. Thank you that we have received our forgiveness, but then we embrace a king, and his kingdom will never end. And so when we are free from our sin, we are not just free to wander about. The priestly side takes care of that freedom, but the kingdom side is what then unites us to a kingdom that will never end, allowing us to be sons and daughters of a living king. And so, Father, the two go hand in hand, and only Christ can do. And that is why he is superior to all. Father, we thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen.